0: You're listening to DevPath.fm, the podcast about career development for software engineers. Join the conversation at www.DevPath.fm or on Twitter at DevPathFM. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Charity Majors. Charity is known as an author and for her writing and also as the CTO of Honeycomb. Charity, do you want to say hello and talk about what you do? Sure. Uh,
1: I think that might be the first time anyone has ever said that I'm known for my writing. Uh, (laughs) That's interesting and cool, uh, I guess. Um, Normally, I've been known for being an ops engineer. I've um, I've been on call since I was 17. I've been a TBA. I've been a software engineer. I've been a manager. I've been, but I always kind of come back to, I love operations. I love engineering, and I love, I love it because you're the most aligned with with users, and so it's very, very motivating. I also like, no lie, I like the adrenaline of things being on fire. <laughs> <laughs> uh, started a company with my friend and co-founder Christine Yen um, three and a half years ago. Wow. And it's still around. I can't believe it. I was CEO for the first three, uh, three and a half years or so. Um, And we recently switched seats. She's now the CEO and I'm the CTO. So here we are. Cool.
0: Yeah. So Charity, how did you initially get into tech and what made you think that that was a good career path?
1: So I grew up, I was homeschooled and I never used a computer growing up. We didn't even have a phone line. Uh, or we also had the outhouse here in idaho um i went to college when i was 15 on a piano performance scholarship um but i pretty quickly realized that music majors were poor and i was sick of being poor and so mm-hmm. i decided not to be poor anymore so i went into computers and um i really enjoyed them uh, like honestly a big part of the reason that i love them is not super wonderful i uh I wanted to be as far away from all the women as I could (laughs) because I did not want um, to be the kind of woman that I thought women had to be. So I was a raging misogynist. I'm like, there's no woman here. I'm safe. So um, I got over it. (laughs) We all do, I hope. Uh, And I've been in computers ever since. But I I, I do love it. It's it's really, I mean, we got lucky, right? This is the one growth industry in the world is is tech and it's kind of a wild west it's kind of a frontier it uh the the speed of change opens doors for people that um and possibilities that the most most of the rest of the, of the world just doesn't have
0: mm-hmm. what was the transition from having an interest in, in playing piano to working on computers and how did you do that not having grown up with technology um i just started doing it. I mean,
1: I really <laughs> loved the command line. Uh, I remember just, you know, being up all night in the Unix lab just hitting tab-tab over and over and trying every single command. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I, I just kind of traded one keyboard for the other, right? Before I was practicing piano eight hours a day and then I was on the computer for eight hours a day and um, then people started to give me money for doing computer things and it was all downhill from there. I, I think that I'm fortunate Fortunate? Eh. I, my brain chemistry lends itself well to obsessiveness <laughs> and deep um, hyper-focus, and, and if I'm interested in something, I will not eat or sleep, or I will try to avoid, avoid going to the bathroom if I can. Like, I do not like to be interrupted until I figure it out, and um, that was very rewarding for me as an engineer. It's been less so as I've been trying to transition into leading a company, but it's kind of a different story.
0: hmm do you remember that first experience of uh, being paid for working with technology?
1: Oh, my God. Yes. Yes. It was so weird. I mean, I grew up on a farm and to me, it's still the idea that I get paid to sit in the chair and fuck around with computers all day. It's insane. Uh, some part of me will never believe that if I'm sitting down and my hands are clean, that it's actually real work. Mm hmm. But the thing that is magic about being in computers is not, is not that it's that um, it's that it's a creative role, right? Uh, Engineering is a fundamentally creative discipline. There are elements of it, of course, that are not. Um, There's, you know, there's stuff that you just have to brute force There's stuff that's not so fun. But like, if you, if you are in a place in your career or you've mastered, you know, the, the basics if you're in an environment where you're working on something that you believe should exist in the world, um, you're interested in it, you're well supported, you know, you have people around you who you respect and you love, like it's magic. You know, it, it is so amazing to just be able to sit back and build and create and debug and solve puzzles and and optimize, you know, that you're not in you've moved up Mazda's hierarchy of needs so far that you're just like you're in pure who do I want to become? What do I want to do? You know, and, and it's kind of amazing to me that as a species, we've, we've right at this place and, and so many people never get that right. That I feel like mm-hmm. I'm profoundly grateful for it.
0: So uh, what part of that do you think has kept you in that technical role for so long? And then how, how did you first decide to move into more of a management role or how did that happen to you if it wasn't a decision?
1: Well, I, I, um, I have clung to the technical stuff for a long time because because um, I wanted to have it as an option and I have seen, especially for women, uh, you get written out of the technical story so quickly if you take mm-hmm. a step or two away and I didn't want to let that happen to me. I've always, I think, identi- a little too much of my identity and my self-respect has come from being a person who's very good at computers and who's a senior technologist you know and it's it's something that uh, it's kind of uncomfortable to admit because it's something Mm -hmm. that i wouldn't really let myself admit about other people you know i i I would like to feel like i have evolved i have learned that you know a person's technical ability is not equal to the sum of their worth or their value or their you know their ability to lead in conversation or anything and yet when when i turn that around on myself um it still is very true (laughs) Um, I started doing management because, because, well, this isn't a very noble admission either, but, um, because I wanted to have more power and information and mm-hmm. I felt like I was being consistently shut out of those decisions and I was cut off from that line of information that I craved. And so I'm like, well, if I have to be a manager, I'm fine, I'll be a manager. Uh, mm-hmm. it. And there were more complex reasons. I also, I felt a lot of responsibility for the team. And I felt like I was the only person who was in a position to push back, to shield them, to kind of carve out a space in the world that worked the way that I felt it should work. I didn't really trust anyone else around me to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I did it. And, And it was... I've gone back and forth a couple of times and I recommend that everyone go back and forth. Everyone should try it. If they're interested, it's a good skill set to have. Um, but no one should feel like it's a one way path and you should do the work that's necessary to make sure that it's not a one way path. You should keep the option of going back and forth for, you know, for a while until you're really sure at least. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I, I also felt like, the impact that I wanted to have, I just couldn't have anymore as an individual contributor. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, this is kind of controversial I, to me because I don't feel like it should have to be that way. And the thing that at our company that we talk about a lot and we try to pay attention to is there should be real avenues for career development and growth and progression um, without having to have direct reports. Like, there, mm-hmm. this there's a power relationship that's built into that, right? Where you know, uh, you you can say that it's not a, and I do say you know, management is not a promotion. It's a change of career. It's a, it's a change of career, mm-hmm. um, and part of that is admitting that you have certain power over people's careers. Um, you know, you're responsible for helping them get to where they want to go, for supporting them, etc. Um, but we bundle up a lot of qualities into that management role that don't need to be there, and a lot of them would be just as well or better done by other senior contributors who are still deep in the technology, who are, you know, working as tech leads or architects, or who are, you know, and and I feel like this should be a very dynamic, shifting set of roles and responsibilities. Like nobody is going to be here and be like king of the mountain for. The entire time, right? That's not healthy. It should be a fluid, you know, you trade off, you give everyone the opportunity, you know, if they're not super junior, everyone should get the chance to lead projects and have people who are contributing, you know, and the lead shouldn't be a position of supreme power. It's more like, oh okay, yeah, you're in charge of, you know, organizing these things and like setting up these meetings and running them. And, you know, if you break down all this to all the mystery that we gather on management, if you break it down into the boring minutia. Then you can see that it's something; it's just a skill set that we all practice pieces, and you just be explicit about who's responsible for which pieces and who's going to be accountable for them. And then, you know, you can you can you can move a lot of bits around. There, these aren't like rules. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and if you and if you allow people to kind of play with that fluidly, then they get to explore a lot more about who they are, how they enjoy relating to other people, what are areas of growth, what are things that they thought that they would love and enjoy that it turns out. They really don't, and then they get to kind of choose more freely from the choices available to them.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. Um, so, a, a kind of a, a follow up question on that as someone this has happened to, um, if you are an indiv- individual contributor who desires more control or more imp- information or just more ability to affect change, and so you take on some of those management tasks, what's your advice for making sure that doesn't take over your entire role?
1: So, I am a big fan i think a lot about is maybe a better way to put it about agency and ownership um leadership in many ways is just another way of saying ownership and mm-hmm. anyone can 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 be a leader right your intern can lead the backups right if they're like i'm going to make sure that everything's backed up you know if they're they're leading that effort like good for them you know uh, you should check up on them, make sure they're doing a good job, but like that is leadership. They're, they're mm-hmm. doing something, they're on point for it, they're accountable for it, and they grow. Um, now, I feel like we all, we'd like to be needed, right? And so when the organization is like, we need this thing from you, um, we have a tendency to say yes, which is good. We should want to be needed, right? This is healthy. Um, but we also have the responsibility to ourselves to own and shepherd our own careers. Um, mm-hmm. And... And it's important to, you know, make sacrifices in the short term and not in the long term. Right? We all sacrifice everything in the short term, but you have to periodically step back and say, Am I doing the right thing for you know future me? Is me a year or two from now going to be like, God damn it, why did I shortchange myself? Why didn't I invest in this? Why didn't I keep up my technical sales? Why didn't I take this time? Because nobody own- it's just like reliability. Nobody owns your reliability but you, right? Mm-hmm. Same thing with your career. Nobody owns your career but you. There is nobody that you can blame other than you for at least trying, right? Maybe you try and you fail, but <laughs> but you gotta try. And and like a thing that I was just thinking about the other day is that you know our 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 calendars are just pockmarked with people who request things from us. Um, and there's literally only one, <laughs> there's there's one um, um customer for your heads-down solo learning time and that's you. Nobody's going to beg you for that other than you. <laughs> and you know, mm-hmm. we can we we can I make all all kinds of excuses for why I don't manage to carve out that time for myself. Um but fundamentally I have to own that I did it <laughs> and I can not do it. Or you know vice versa. I have the ability to carve that time out for myself so that I can invest in myself. And I need to.
0: In in your own career, what was the transition from individual contributor to maybe like leading a team to being in a role where your one of your primary responsibilities is, is managing others?
1: Yeah, what was that like? Hmm. Well, it's weird because it feels like you're not doing anything, right? Like you go home at the end of the day, and you think back, and you're just like, "What did I do?" Like what? Mm-hmm what did I do? <laughs> Seriously, like, did I do anything? Did, did, did the world, did it make any difference that I was there today at all? And it kind of fuck with your head. Uh, because you're exhausted. You did stuff, but it's the, the impact is much more. It's, it's spread out over time. And it's spread out over people. And it's not, it's not always going to be visible to you ever. Um, and so like just the process of learning how to, you know, when you were an engineer, you learned, this all comes down to brain drugs, right? You learn to find dopamine and, and like satisfaction and joy out of certain things. And you would go back to those things when, when you instinctively knew that you needed them, right? Um, as, an, as a manager, you have no idea where to find your dopamine. You don't know how, you know, you, you don't even know when you've done a good job or not. Uh, for the first two years of management, I was convinced that I was doing a terrible job constantly, despite the mm-hmm. fact that I was getting great reviews and, you know, people seemed to like working with me. Uh, I felt like a complete failure every day. Um, and it took a while for me to, and, and some people experience the opposite. They feel like they're doing great all the time. And then they're like, sh- they're deeply shaken later when they feel realize they're making newbie rookie mistakes all along, as we all do right? Mm -hmm. You don't know. You don't know. And you kind of just have to embrace that uncertainty and try to ignore it and just throw your energy into learning this new career set that you are exploring. You can't treat it like something you don't need to learn. You can't treat it like something that's going to come to you naturally or magically because it won't. Uh, and, And management especially is not something that we know how to teach each other, honestly, you know, like it's something you're just kind of expected to pick up. Um, we, we know how to turn junior engineers into senior engineers, right? We've gotten pretty good at that. Um, but when it comes to management, the idea that we might need to learn something is, is um, well, it's very personal. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've read a lot of management books. I was at Facebook. They put me through management trainings and Classes and all this stuff, and I will say that maybe this is a function of my learning style. But the one and only thing that has ever helped me get better as a manager, other than just trial and error and like living through things, is getting together with peers and swapping stories, like telling stories about things that I have tried in in a given situation hearing their stories about what they've tried. And it's different because they're not trying to give me advice, right? They're not trying to tell Mm -hmm. me what to do because the specifics to each situation are so important, right? The individual that you're dealing with, um, the unique interpersonal dynamics, everything matters. And all you can do is make, you know, your best call about this particular situation in front of you, but you can be armed with more stories. And so I've come to feel like storytelling and having a personal network of other managers, ideally some that are a little bit more senior than you who have more stories in their pocket, is mm-hmm. the only way to really accelerate your development as a as a as a people manager.
0: One of the things you mentioned was that sensation of feeling like a failure kind of regularly. Mm-hmm. Would you equate that to this idea of imposter syndrome or do you think that was something else and and how did you deal with it? Oh, well, that's a good question. Um
1: I I don't know that I would call it imposter syndrome. I don't know. I've never really thought that I was any worse than everyone else around me. <laughs> <laughs> um Maybe that's not entirely true. I think that in the in the earlier years of my career, I had a I had a chip on my shoulder about not having an engineering degree because I'm a college dropout mm-hmm. who has never been to high school or any other school for that matter. You know, I was I was in college for a few years and I tried a bunch of majors and I dropped out once I realized I could get paid a lot of money. Um, mm-hmm. And earlier in my career, you know, I was surrounded by all these like Berkeley CS grads and stuff. And, and I did feel like I spent a lot of time nodding and pretending I, I knew what they were talking about, racing back to my desk, Googling like crazy, trying to understand the fucking conversation about algorithms or whatever. And then coming Mm -hmm. back the next day and and like pretending like I had known all along, you know, uh, as a junior person, you're not comfortable showing your, your, your gaps. Right. And, uh, and I remember very clearly the, the year in my career that was kind of a turning point where I started to realize that people were coming to me for help at least as much or more than I was going to them, and that was mm-hmm. when I kind of straightened my spine and went, "Okay, <laughs> this is fine. I can do this, right?" And and so I don't think it was so much of imposter syndrome as it just was just like um, uh, a feeling of being different and having different gaps and having to work five times as hard to to make up for them.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think that pattern of people? coming to you for advice was kind of foreshadowing of you eventually moving into a leadership role.
1: I do think that, um, I think that people who want to be in leadership roles, um, are often doing things that kind of sabotage them. Um, I, I mean, mm-hmm. we're, we're such social animals, right. Um, and we, we look to these things that are not necessarily good indicators of whether someone will be a leader or not, but we look to them anyway. And I think some of them I, I kind of naturally do. One of them is, um, just giving my opinion, (laughs) just always like, Mm -hmm. you know, just like, just, just speaking up because I, I feel like I'm right. Right. Um, this isn't necessarily a good thing. And it does not correlate to being right at all. Um, (laughs) but you kind of have to be willing and ready and able to put yourself out there and, and deal with it. Right. Um, another one is ownership. I think that I've always felt very, I've always over identified with my work with the quality of my work, with, you know, I've never been someone who was just like, oh, that thing I built is broken. Oh, well, you know, it, it appalls me. It offends me when the things that I've done will break, you know, and I will, and I will mm-hmm. go and I will beat it into submission. And I feel like um, I didn't realize until I became a manager what a relief it is to managers when their reports feel ownership and responsibility over the things that they're responsible for. Mm-hmm. And it's not universal, Right. But those are absolutely the people that I look to, to be leaders because, um, it, as a manager, you have to care about so many things and it's anything that you can just trust someone else to care about, um, is, is, is just a gift. So I think that ownership identification, um, being a little bit loud or just like not retiring, um, being willing to like. And, and a lot of this is gendered, I think. And I, I mm-hmm. think that I was very fortunate that I kind of had such a weird upbringing that if I didn't notice misogyny or someone treating me like a woman, unless they were literally like telling me to get in the kitchen and get pregnant with me, you know, like that's the level of misogyny that I grew up with. So like the mm-hmm. little stuff never even registered with me. And I think that was, mm-hmm. that I feel very fortunate, <laughs> honestly. Um, uh but I do think that that plays into why women get looked over for leadership roles, because they haven't been training for it all along by by mm-hmm. these behavioral patterns.
0: Yeah, I've, I've commented on that before. I feel like uh, especially the tendency to be outspoken about your opinions, that's something that I think, depending on your background, you might have actually had trained out of you. Yeah, that's interesting and very unique about you, I think.
1: Yeah. I thought I was a dude. Like I just really, like I didn't have gender dysphoria or anything like that, but I just like, Mm -hmm. I I so completely identified with like the dominant group that, you know, I, I've had to go to a lot of therapy and do a lot of work to like unpack this as I became more senior and started to realize that I had a responsibility to have this, to cultivate the sensitivity on the behalf of the other junior woman around me. Um, but that's been very much a learned thing for me.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one thing I wanted to ask about that you mentioned that drive and and sense of ownership, is that something that you've had to balance throughout your career? Has that been a difficult thing for you to manage sometimes? Uh,
1: Yeah. Yeah. um, I have. I have not ever been good at work life balance. um, And I'm kind of okay with that. Um, Uh I accept that I'm a workaholic. It's part of why I started a company. Like, my partner was just like, well, you're going to work yourself like nuts anyway. It might as well be your thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was like, that's fair, right? Because I definitely felt like at Parse, I felt like by the end I would, I cared so much more than the founders did and I was working so much harder than the founders did. And it wasn't my company. Like I should not have done that. Um, yeah. But in, in the end, it makes me happy to do that, right? It's, it's about me. It's not about them. And the companies that I have um, not felt that way about have been the only years of my life that I consider to have been wasted from a career perspective. So, mm-hmm. you know, yes, there's always, anytime you care passionately about something, there's going to be a bit of friction. Um, but I would so much rather, and I think almost anyone would rather deal with the friction of caring too much um, than caring too little. How did you
0: come to the decision that you were working harder than the founders and uh, of whatever company and that you needed to build your own?
1: Oh, well it wasn't exactly a, this, that because of one, because of the other. Um, but it was just obvious. I was working more hours. I cared more. I was way more upset when Facebook would fuck with us and sounders would just be kind of like, you know, they'd gotten their payout of millions of dollars and they're sitting there, you know, vesting and resting for a few years. And, and I was still like, no, we're in it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, and because I was there in it, you know, and because everyone in engineering kind of looked to me for their cues, um, I think that I did a disservice to a lot of people because I stayed too long. I cared too much. I stayed too long. The founders weren't really honest with us about what was likely to happen. All of our work mm-hmm. ended up just being shut down a few months after I left. Um, and right after I left, almost everyone left Pars. And that, that was what told me that my being there was what had told everyone else it was okay, that they didn't have to think too hard about these things because I would have, you know, told them or I would have like made noise about it or something. And I didn't know. So I gave cover for people to just, it's not the worst thing in the world, but they could have been off doing better things with their life. They could have been learning and growing. Mm-hmm. They could have been working on something that wasn't doomed to fail. And instead, so that was kind of a, a lesson for me to. Think more critically and be more cynical about what I'm being told from leadership. The reason that I started the company, there are many reasons. The main ones, well, leaving Facebook, first time in my life that I've ever had what I would call a pedigree where people were coming to me like, could we give you money? Like this has never happened to me before in my life. And Mm -hmm. I knew it would never happen again. And so I kind of felt a responsibility on behalf of all the women and dropouts in the world to take the money and run (laughs) so Mm -hmm. there was that uh and also i'd had this experience at facebook at parse where you know around the time that we were acquired i was coming to the horrified conclusion that we had built a system some of the best engineers in the world doing all of the quote-unquote right things we had built the system was basically undebuggable by anyone Mm -hmm. you know and and the process of like trying every tool out there trying everything just be you know and and then using this one thing at facebook that let us like you know scuba blah 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 you probably heard the story but like it, the time to answer these questions about what was happening in Paris dropped like like a rock from like days mm-hmm. to seconds and and repeatably predictably and and when i was leaving facebook you know i i was just like I was planning to go be an engineering manager somewhere else. And that's when I realized, like, I don't know how to engineer anymore without the stuff that we've built. It's not just Mm -hmm. incident response or when the site's down or anything. It has become so core to how I decide what I'm going to build, how I understand what's happening in production, what our users are experiencing, whether or not it's worth it to do this thing. It's how I validate every move that I make. It's how I know that what I think I built is what is actually happening. It's how I, you know, it's, just, it's, it's like, you know, it's like the idea of losing two or three of my senses, like, or driving down the freeway without my glasses, like, it's just not thinkable. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, and at the time, I really thought that this was just a platform problem. Um, we started building it. And it wasn't until like, a year later that we started to realize that this isn't just a platform problem. This isn't, everybody problem because it's a function of pure complexity and everybody's starting to fall off this cliff um where their old tools don't work for them but like honestly that was the real motivating thing it was just I've never been someone who's like oh, I'm gonna start a company someday I really hate that the founder worship in the Silicon Valley. I'm mm-hmm. I'm really allergic to it. It's just grotesque. Um, CEOs are no different than other people. Founders are not many gods to be worshipped. It's really obnoxious. But you know i i'm in I'm in San Francisco, I love it it's a boom town, and maybe I should have the experience of starting a company once you know so it it was really just you know the right product, the right partner, the easy access to capital, and you know I should do it once, why not? Um, but I honestly thought mm-hmm. that like we'd be dead the middle, the <laughs> over right <by> now but <laughs> I, I i you know. And I'm an ops, right? So, you know, we were, we were pessimists to the bone, but like, I was just like every, every year I was just like, well, this is the end. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> so has a uh, being that, that driver's seat kind of changed your relationship with technology or do you still feel like the same as someone who's working day in and day out with the, with the tools?
1: Oh, no, I don't feel the same, but it's hard to characterize. Mm hmm. I think um, it's just going to be very very hard for me to go heads down and build things from now on and I say that with sadness because I think the happiest I've ever been have been the years that I was working as a senior engineer building things and I've never tapped into the same kind of joy in any other role but I'm as a as a person I am deeply fundamentally motivated not by things that I want to do, but by things that must be done, you know, you know, Mm -hmm. and I really envy people who are deeply motivated by, oh, this technology is really cool. Oh, this thing is shiny. Oh, I want to build this toy. I wish that I knew, I wish I had a brain that worked that way because it seems delightful. Um, this is why I gravitated towards ops, you know, like I, I'm very much motivated by what must be done. That is what I want to do. And, and I think that now, um, I see so much broken <laughs> stuff that I never saw before, mm-hmm. but it's going to be pretty hard for me to just put it on enough blinkers
0: to just go ahead and, and build things,
1: which, yeah, you know, when you get older, it's all a little bittersweet.
0: We'll see. I could be wrong. <laughs> What's your advice to people navigating their like engineering career that think the same way you do and, and have to solve things that must be solved.
1: Um, force yourself to step outside of your comfort zone Uh, like I like, I will, I will play mind tricks with myself, you know, to get myself to do things like convince yourself that the most important thing for you to do is to learn react, right. (laughs) Or convince Mm -hmm. yourself that you, in order to be a well-rounded engineer, you know, like I think that trying to fight your own biology is just a losing prospect and it's much better to get to intimately know what motivates you and how your own system, internal system works and then, Mm -hmm. um, work with it. I've spent enough years like banging my head against, why can't I just be this way? Um, And it just doesn't work. It never works. You always lose. So, but we're very, um, our brains are, are complex and it's pretty easy to trick ourselves if we just, if we just like create some structure around it. I don't know. I think Uh that I would, I would advise people to, um, it's rare, sadly, for managers to do what they should do, which is ask their reports at least twice a year what they want to be when they grow up, right? Mm-hmm. Where What skill sets would you like to be? Nobody should be shamed for saying that they're interested in being a manager. Everybody should get the chance to practice those skills. Um, I think it's a gift whenever a report tells me what they want to that they want to try and be something because then I know exactly what to help them work on, right? Um, mm-hmm. Sadly... I've never had a good manager. Honestly, I think that if you can get yourself hooked up with one of those good managers, it's worth following them from place to place because it really does accelerate your career. Um, mm-hmm. But they're rare, and a lot of us have to be our own advocates and managers, and that that works too.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you have a, an answer for that question? What do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> no,
1: no. You know, I always I've given up answering that question because. I never know what I want to be. I always know what I don't want to be. And I always end up having Mm -hmm. to be that thing. So I'm not doing, I'm not playing that game anymore.
0: (laughs) What's your advice uh, being someone that's had to do it uh, when it comes to managing yourself? Advice for managing yourself.
1: Um, I think that it is good to, I don't believe in mentors, um, but I do believe in making friends and having peers with people who are way more senior and way more junior than you, um, because mm-hmm. it's a great mirror um, to reflect on yourself. Um, and that has been really valuable for me in my career, just like cultivating a wide circle of acquaintances and like going out for drinks with them, you know, a, a, a range. Of, this is, this may not sound like much, but for an introvert like me, like this has been, this is a huge, huge theme of my life. is like forcing myself to go out of the house. Um, mm-hmm. But like, I I feel like peer relationships are fundamentally way more healthy than mentor relationships are because everybody wants to give and take, right? Nobody loves a taker. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't want to be a taker. I'm very deeply uncomfortable with that. But I love relationships where I can give a little and take a little. And I think that um, when you have people in your life who are, you know, who are more senior than you, um, then just spending time with them, you naturally compare yourself against them and you see the path that they've taken and you can kind of, you know, see yourself there and you learn a lot and you know, they're always full of advice too. So yeah, I think, mm-hmm. I think it's worth making friends in the industry. I really do. That's the reason you go to conferences. It's not for the talks. You Nobody know learns shit from the talks. It's for the hallway track where you get to meet people. Um, it, people who are considered famous in tech are always deeply uncomfortable with that. I know I am. I am very uncomfortable with it. I really like it when people will say hi to me. I'm too, shy to say hi to most people, um, but, you know, just like hanging out as human beings, comparing notes, it's the, it's the, it's the way to ensure that you will always be employable. Um, and it's the best way to get a broader lens on, on your career and where you're coming from, where you're going. I think.
0: Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Most of my interactions with people that you might call like tech celebrities are, are famous in tech. Nice uh, have been. <laughs> Yeah, and they've been they've been. I, I give people the advice of like the whole point of this podcast, right? Is is meet people you consider heroes because they're just normal people, and they can they can their life stories and their advice can be very applicable to your own, uh, which I think is surprising for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's
0: and this is really it's very uncomfortable to, to say like as
1: a tech celebrity, here's how you should. You know, but like the the only thing that is awkward is when people do have such a like hero complex that they they're like nervous about you or around you or something, mm-hmm. and then you feel really awkward and weird about it. And you know that so just like it, it, it I demystify it. You know, as as much as you can, just don't think about it. Just, just don't think mm-hmm. about it, right? Um, because we are all awkward nerds who are just a couple of years <laughs> removed from adolescence and acne and. You know, there are a couple people in the field who are divas, but you can suss them out real quick and everyone else is just a very normal person.
0: So one of the the goals of this podcast is to to do that to kind of
1: Yeah, I love that.
0: To humanize, yeah, humanize people that would normally be considered tech celebrities or heroes and, and people might have that hero complex. Yeah. So one of the primary ways that I do that is I ask everybody to share something that they think they're bad at. Mm-hmm. So what is that for you?
1: Yeah. Oh,
0: that's
1: a, that's a great question. I, I just thought of another uh, answer to the, what you were asking before about um, career and therapy. Everyone should go to therapy. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's um, it, and the people who think that they shouldn't go to therapy are the ones who should most go to therapy. <laughs> um, all right. So what am I bad at? Um, you know, this, this answer changes a lot because um, I compulsively do the things that I'm bad at. Um, mm-hmm. a couple years ago, I would have said that public speaking was my biggest fear. And, um, I'm not, and I'm not kidding. Like, um, I got, when I got asked to give my first talk, it was a 10 minute in the middle of someone else's Mago talk. It was just like a customer you know, perspective. Somebody asked me to do this 10 minute thing and, um, mm-hmm. I agreed. And for three months beforehand, I had a nightmare almost every single night. Like I woke up like shaking in a cold sweat, just imagining I didn't even know what. You know, and like the before that, the closest experience I had had was just like being asked to draw, give a 30-minute infrastructure talk over lunch to my team, a team of like 12 people, right? I had nightmares mm-hmm. about that. I spent days preparing for that. Like I was, I was so terrified that I was embarrassed for myself. (laughs) I was just like, I don't like this feeling. This is bad. I should not be this scared about this. And so I'm going to brute force it. And so I applied and I accepted every invitation that I got to give a talk in front of any audience um, for And I got a prescription for propranolol. I do believe in better living through chemistry. It's that blood pressure Mm -hmm. medication that lowers it and it blocks your adrenaline receptors so you don't shake as much. Mm -hmm. That was important. Um, And about, I think I gave about 12 talks the first year, 17 talks the second year. And somewhere midway through the third year, I realized that I had stopped remembering to pack my prescription of propranolol. And that's when I was like, Okay, I think I'm over it. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's 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 my approach to pain. Hug it hard. Um, right now, honestly, I was a really bad CEO. I was a really bad CEO. I have a really hard time with schedules. With you know, a day that is broken up into thirty and sixty minute chunks. Like I've never done that before. I was late. I was behind like for two and a half years. I feel like I should just apologize to anybody I had any appointment with or was giving a talk for or anything. Cause I was just, I was just a mess. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that I might have adult ADHD in a very severe way that has just been undiagnosed because I've always made it work for me. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about maybe pursuing that. I don't know. I have a fear of the medical establishment um, I have I have a lot of fears and a lot of things that I'm bad at. Another thing that I'm bad at is I'm going to sleep. I have barely slept for the past three days. That sucks. I'm really bad at context switching. You know, I would love to spend some time doing technical work, work right now. And I feel bad about myself that I don't, but the cost of going back and forth is enormous. Like Mm-hmm. days it's on the order of days for me right now and i don't have that time mm-hmm. um i'm really bad at moderation in general i'm really bad at front end code anything that has to do with aesthetics or <laughs> or making things be beautiful and pleasant to look at and bad at i mean i can keep going i mean I can, <laughs> i'm i am i am not tell me when you want me to stop because i'm just like thinking all the things that i'm terrible at now I eat way too much sugar.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, it's really valuable to be honest about those things. Um, But I do, I do wonder if you have any advice for people that share those same problems, or if there's things that you've done that have been effective at dealing with those. I
1: used to have a lot of shame, like a lot of shame. Like I would lay in bed every night and just like embarrassing, humiliating moments from my past would just like run through. You know, I, I grew up religious, like very religious, and you know, didn't shake the God thing until later in my 20s. And, and, and there came a point when I was just like, this is not acceptable. And, um, and it turns out you can change that. You can reprogram your brain to not feel so fucking ashamed and self-blamey. And, and like, it's just a habit. It is just a habit that we're so close to it because it's happening in our heads that it's hard to separate from who we are. But it's just, it's just a habit that we've fallen into. And habits can be changed. It just takes some experimentation. For me, the thing that I did, this is a little embarrassing to admit, um, I, I I felt so bad about myself that, like, one day I somebody said something kind of nice about me, and I happened to notice it. And I wondered, I wonder if this happens and I don't notice it or I forget it. So I, I wrote it down. And the next day somebody else said something nice about me and I wrote it down and I just made a practice of writing down every nice thing that I ever heard anyone say about me. And then at night when I was laying in bed, you know, trying to get the shit out of my head, I would, I would read that list over and over. I had that list fucking memorized, you know, and it got to be fairly long. Turns out I was not a total fuck up. And like people did kind yeah. of like me and they said nice things about me all the time. And I just hadn't noticed for like years. Um, and I just, fucking i i built that list and i clung to it and i read it until it, until i had a different habit until i just it mm-hmm. just my brain just wasn't so you know cuz you, your neural pathways get the the more often that you take them the more well worn they become and the easier it is for them to you know it, and so it's self reinforcing and you just have to experiment find a way to to shift your neurology um to try different pathways and it's completely doable
0: mhm So one, one last question. Um, if you could distill down like one trait or habit or whatever it is, uh, that you think makes you good at what you're doing right now, what would that be? Um,
1: stubbornness, persistence. Yeah. Uh,
0: it, it's throughout
1: repeated escalating failures. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I am very stubborn. I don't give up. And, um, that's not always a good thing. It, could be, it can also be a bad thing. But by and large,
0: it's why I'm here. Cool. Well, before we wrap up, Charity, where should people go if they want to learn more about you or your company?
1: Um, company is Honeycomb.io. Our blog, we've been investing in it for a few years now. And I think it's the best collection of writings that you'll find in observability and like the next generation of understanding complex systems. My blog is charity.wtf. And I tweet at Nipsy Tipsy.
0: Well, thank you for uh, sharing the things that you struggle with and being really honest. I think that's super important. Thanks for for, having me. uh, Tech tech celebrities like you. My pleasure. (laughs) Thanks for listening to devpath.fm. Want to ask a question? Send an email to jacob at devpath.fm.